Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Brendan O'Connor Show. Uh, it's not Brendan this morning. It's Derville McDonald sitting in for him uh, on this, the first Sunday of the new year. And a happy new year to all of you. I will shortly introduce you to our panel who've been pouring over all of the details of the newspaper so you don't have to. But before I do, let's take a look at what is making the news this morning. Uh, let's go first to the Sunday Times. HSE gears up for 350,000 antigen tests per week. That's the lead. Um, the new antigen test regime, which takes effect tomorrow, will see capacity more than tripled to increase demand for the 4 to 39-year-old age cohort who are now required to produce a positive antigen test before booking a PCR test. John Mooney also has a piece uh, on a potential anti-vaxxer link to an arson attack on the Freemason Hall in Dublin city centre. That's one of its several off-leads. The Sunday Independent also leads with COVID. Hospitals feel the pressure as Omicron wreaks havoc. Um, detailing how staff absences are adding to the strain of record case numbers, but also noting that the sharp increase in admissions and numbers has not yet had a major impact on intensive care unit capacity, but it is definitely having an effect on general bed capacity. The Sunday Independent has a fabulous uh, front page picture by Patrick uh, Brown aiming for a new year of hope and it's Dumbrody Archo's arrow ceremony at Hook Lighthouse in County Wexford uh, yesterday, a tradition that goes all the way back to 1687. It's an absolutely stunning picture. The Sunday Business Post leads with a report um, with no less than four bylines this morning that positive antigen tests could be added to official COVID figures, adding that the government is cautiously optimistic that COVID-19 cases will peak in the coming week. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday doesn't opt for a COVID um, uh, headline. It is one instead on an interview with the Taoiseach. Sinn Féin's high taxes will hurt jobs. Uh, group political editor John Lee carries details of uh, not an interview but an end of year briefing um, to uh, given by the Taoiseach where he has also condemned Sinn Féin's party's foreign policies. We'll get to that later on because it's carried extensively in all of the newspapers today. Um, over to the tabloids, uh, the Irish Sun on Sunday along with most of the tabloids uh, depart from Covid with a harrowing reports of that New Year's uh, road traffic tragedy that claimed the lives of a young couple and a bride-to-be on New Year's Eve. Um, it's a dark shadow on what had in fact been a record-breaking year for road safety in Ireland. We had our lowest um, death toll since records began in 1959, um, but a tragic start uh, to the year. Across the IRC, uh, COVID-19 also dominates with reports that tougher rules in schools will be introduced to tackle the mammoth uh, Omicron wave there. Many of the papers there are carrying reports that secondary school pupils in the UK will be forced back into wearing face masks in lessons. And um, and final one for you from the Daily Star Sunday, which is alien lizards ruling the planet um, <laughs> just in case you're too alarmed there is a small clarification in red which says that's what millennials believe <laughs> so that's according uh, to the paper perhaps it really really caught my eye uh, they've got this brilliant picture of a man with um, a lizard head on it but there you go uh, certainly an alternate to uh, COVID-19 if nothing else although slightly um, linked I suppose all with uh, conspiracy theories well look that is the headlines um, but now I want to introduce now to our panel joining me in studio are Shona Murray, European correspondent of Neuronews, also joined by Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent at the Irish Independent, and all the way on the Wild Atlantic Way, um, live from our Radio Nigel Talks Ballinanol uh, studio, is uh, Paul Allen from Paul Allen PR. Good morning to you. You're all very, very welcome. Good morning and Happy New Year. Morning. Morning. Happy New Year. Happy I know New I was Year. a bit confused on Friday. I didn't know what day or time it was, but it's Sunday and I'm all set now. Shona, I'm going to start with you. First of all, welcome home. But um, 
I think you were sort of typical of many people over Christmas because you had the COVID, as it's called, for for not once, but possibly the second time. Well, we don't know. I mean, yes, certainly I had it over Christmas. um, And thankfully I had my... Uh, booster shot in early December in Brussels so I uh, was well prepared and, and you were antigening all along the way I was antigening along the way it was had no symptoms and then I did feel uh, that it had a positive antigen and then that evening the symptoms sort of um, emerged uh, which were very mild thankfully because of the booster shot and hopefully the fact that it was Omicron that I had caught um, mild cold a lot of nasally feelings and um, uh, insatiable appetite but a friend of mine just pointed out that was just Christmas because yeah. <laughs> I, I was waiting for me to, my, to yeah, lose uh, my taste, yeah, sure taste. Most, most other people lost their sense yeah, of taste no, I, I definitely did um, but it actually it, it was possibly the second time uh, that you had COVID Could I had you? an interesting instant last year where I was getting because I I actually did te- a lot of testing last year because I did travel a you bit travel for work. A lot. Yeah. yeah, it was in Strasbourg and Slovenia and various places. And I also had to do a few things in the European Commission office, which meant I had to get tested and so on. So there was a lot of testing going on. Um, and I'd never come up positive. But then at one point, I did come up positive, was shocked, mm. was, was full of my health. Did two more uh, tests, PCRs, this, these were, and they were both negative. And actually, the, the Belgian uh, contact team got in touch with me and said, actually, we were wrong, you don't have COVID. But what we found was the residue of an old COVID infection, which could have been from at any point. The only time I remember having sort of any symptoms was in early 2020, like February, March 2020, when I did have a, a cold. But obviously, there was no... Such I thing know a lot as of people, even PCR testing. Yeah, them. but a lot of people who've got antibody tests have have kind of discovered after the fact that they may uh, have had the infection. So it's a I did an antibody test and I did have um, antibodies. That was early. This was that was earlier last year, but obviously that didn't protect me from Omicron mm-hmm. because I had my booster fully mm-hmm. vaccinated and did manage to catch it. But uh, so thankful that the symptoms were so mild. I'm good to see that you're in the clear, uh, Hugh. Partly because uh, your wife broke her leg a little while ago. Uh, the whole <laughs> family have been restricting their movements. Yeah. How was Christmas and New Year for you? Oh, it, was, it was fine. I mean, rel- relatively COVID free. Um, um, I know a lot of people, and my wife know a lot of, knows a lot of people who, who've got COVID or were close contacts, had to isolate. But we we were unaffected. We had a small gathering. My sister came home from London. She had her booster just before she came home. Um, and myself, my mother, uh, my sister, and, and my our one year old, and, and my wife with a broken leg, who's <laughs> thankfully on the mend. But um, very quiet Christmas. Um, but you know, it's like it's it's so kind of funny. I remember just kind of going home, at you know, driving home for Christmas uh, up the road to Newry with what is my now annual yeah. uh, peace of mind PCR test. Just when yeah. you're going home, but it's just life has changed just so much. Yeah, it has. Yeah, I mean, we didn't do PCRs before Christmas, but we've been antigening along the way. And uh, you know, my my sister when she came home had to do five antigen tests uh, over five days, uh, and all came up negative. Um, uh, strangely enough, actually, she was staying with my aunt in London, who on the day. Uh, who she? My aunt got her uh, booster shot. She also tested positive for COVID. So my sister got out of London, came home, got a PCR test negative, five antigen tests negative. So close call, I guess. But um, look, it's, I mean, Christmas has been disrupted for an, or, an awful lot of people. You know, either through getting COVID or through close contacts. I mean, I know a lot of people whose Christmas Day plans went up in smoke once the the two yeah. red lines showed up on the uh, on the little cassettes I on know. the antigen test. So C and T does not mean Christmas time. Yeah, let's, go to, uh, let's go to let's go to Nanal and to uh, Paul Allen. How's it been down in the wild at Atlantic Way? Um, has the isolation spurred you? Uh, the, the, the inspiration station. It's been fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. 
fantastic. And, and just to pay, paint pictures on the radio, if I may, uh, I'd like to thank Owen and Katrina for arranging me to sit here. This is a dream. This is heaven. I have a warm cup of coffee. I have a soggy biscuit from the USA assortment in the bottom part of the tray here. Uh, and looking out on a stone wall with a couple of cows. And a few minutes, it's been lashing rain. So I think the sea swimming won't happen this afternoon, but maybe late, maybe tomorrow before we head back. Well, I want an inquiry because we don't have any biscuits here. <laughs> so I'll have to <laughs> check into that. Um, it, it's interesting, uh, Paul Allen, last year, um, you know, when you look at the, the rows, and of course the context was very, very different, um, but it was over wearing masks and, and antigen testing. And, and now snake it oil. Is, and, and snake oil. And now it is back. Um, now it is a central pillar. Yes, there is. And uh, last year we were battling at one stage. We were trying to encourage the government to introduce antigen testing, but we had doors closed at, at, at us left, right and centre. Uh, so we're in a very uh, situation here that obviously, uh, as you heard from Shona, and good to hear you're on the road to recovery, Shona, and you're on the way back. Um, it, 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 the mild symptoms are, are something that's obviously what's ha- happening to people now because we've been now tripled uh, vaccinated with our booster. So we're in reasonably good shape. Um, talking to some medics, they believe this will burn out by by spring. Uh, please God, it'll come sooner. But but down in Dingle, one thing that you can't help but but realise is the, the the isolation and the loneliness people of the community are facing. They're living on their own, elderly people, uh, the bachelor farm or, or, the, or the, the farming community. They're just on their own loneliness. Um, and, you know, we have dark days ahead, but we've also bright days ahead when it comes to the January months. But it, it, it's difficult for people to cope. And um, with the shortages now in, in, in restaurants and cafes, home deliveries and supermarkets are now not going to take place. Is the way they're looking at it. They're going to have to reschedule other staff or get other staff in or other family members in in order to cope with, with the supply chain issues. And, so, and, and they are there, there's no doubt, all over uh, the papers today, uh, Hugh Connell, lots of, um, whether it's retailers, hoteliers, everyone talking about those acute staff shortages. But the mood seems to be somewhat more optimistic. Um, all of the papers well briefed to the effect that the government believes that, the, that this could peak within the next seven to nine days. Mm. There isn't the same, thankfully, um, sense of panic that there was in January no, last year? definitely not. I mean, I think what's been happening over the last uh, week to 10 days is, is largely what was expected um, in terms of a, a very high level of daily case numbers. Uh, 23,000 yesterday, probably going to be more today. Uh, probably a lot, a lot, a lot more, a lot more in reality uh, outside of the PCR testing system. No, no testing and tracing system could cope with the level of infection that's in the community at the moment. But I mean, the encouraging thing seems seems to be. Um, that uh, people aren't getting as sick, even those presenting to hospital are not as sick as they were in um, in previous waves with with different with other variants, uh, Delta, for example. So, pe- people in government seem pretty pretty relaxed right now as to the, the trajectory of what's what's ahead of us, uh, in, uh, particularly subject in relation subject to everything remaining relatively stable. I mean, the big issue obviously is schools due to reopen on Thursday, no one I spoke to in government or at a senior level on the public health side of things thinks at this stage that there's going to be any delay in the reopening of schools yeah, on Thursday. And it's interesting, Shona, just looking across to our neighbours uh, across the water, um, even as they're building sort of temporary uh, units um, in hospital car parks, uh, the big story there is actually about children in secondary school wearing masks. But there really doesn't seem to be uh, a desire to um, to go back into that uh, pattern of, of closing schools anywhere across Europe. No, there isn't. An, I mean, you UK especially, I think, I mean, they don't really have any desire to do anything regarding any sort of lockdown or, or, or except for just getting vaccinated. I think that's 
been really problematic actually for people who've been vulnerable at the sort of disregard for people who actually do need protection. But yeah, across Europe, especially, um, I know in Belgium, it's one of the most infectious places in Europe. There's no, there's never been any co- uh, call to close down schools, particularly in France as well. And so, um, if you look at uh, Luca Neal's piece in the Sindo on page six, actually, it's incredibly optimistic reading for anyone who he says similarly that this pandemic will end in early 2022 because um, there is a growing consensus, although we don't all have all the information, that the their link between hospitalizations and infections and infection has been broken largely, looking at South Africa, England and Wales. Although different percentages, different percentages based on which country. Indeed, because of obviously the, the number of people vaccinated, the demographics being really important, the you know vulnerable cases and so on. But largely speaking, the people mm-hmm. who are catching Omicron aren't ending up in hospital by and large, except for the unvaccinated, which he said is disproportionate obviously showing in in hospitals yeah. and also we also have one of the lowest uh, fatality rates um, still in in your probably uh, in uh, no small way thanks to the the vaccination program which is still st- very which fluctuates across Europe as well yeah. I mean Ireland, Ireland obviously 19 to 95% but in places like Bulgaria have 40% people vaccinated um, and that is obviously hugely problematic because we need the world to be vaccinated to know mm-hmm. that there isn't more escape variants um, in, in Belgium um where the cases have been really high and devastating for hospital staff. I mean, this time last year I was visiting hospitals in Liège where staff were overwhelmed and obviously COVID positive and it was really horrific. Now um, I spoke to the head of the emergency department and he told me that the high proportion of people who are unvaccinated is taking its toll because so many people, I mean, there was one case where uh, parents died and they left three small children behind. These are people who were against getting vaccinated and also there's a huge problem in places like Belgium and in particular in some parts of Ireland where you have an immigrant community that isn't being reached properly by uh, the system and they're not getting their vaccinations as well. We've seen that recently with a a sort of renewed effort to to reach those harder to reach communities. I want to uh, just bring in now uh, Dr Anna Rose Pryor on the line and uh, Dr Pryor is a consultant microbiologist at Tala University Hospital. Um, Tomorrow Anna Rose we wake up to a new antigen test regime and I think um, that myself like many other people have lots of questions about it but there's no doubt that the PCR testing system is under extreme pressure Um, um, what are your thoughts on both the advantages and the disadvantages of um, antigen tests becoming the central pillar? Hi, how are you? Um, yes, I, I think this is essential because our system has obviously come under extreme pressure in the last week with, with the need for PCR testing. Um, there's been lots of talk over the last year or two about antigen testing. Um, and now, to be honest, you know, they have they have their advantages and disadvantages. Now is, is a time when they're good to use. So when your population prevalence is quite high, um, that's when you're more likely to pick up true cases. Um, so if you test at a time where prevalence is low, where people don't have many symptoms, your your positives are more likely to be false positives than true positives. Or, you know, a significant proportion can be can be false positives. So now, now is a good time to move towards using antigen testing um, to pick up cases in the community, particularly when access to PCR is so delayed at the moment. Um, it allows people to get a positive result and if they have symptoms and if they're a contact with COVID then that positive is more than likely a true positive and it allows them to take action then based on that positive result. So it gives people ownership I suppose of, of their of their illness or, or their, their their diagnosis and, and allows them to take action based on that. So um, now is the right time to use it when we're under significant pressure but also when prevalence is high the test will perform much better. And do you have any kind of concerns about the behavioural aspects of it? You know will people stay at home if they're, they've got a negative antigen test you know they're close contact it's a family member will they see that little C and think woohoo 
you know, I can head out, you know, is there a risk, you know, sometimes those antigen tests are a point in time and you could take several of them, could be negative and later only to test positive on a PCR. So is it right that only positive antigen tests should go forward for PCR testing? So absolutely. And that's always been the concern with these tests. And with any test, and no test is 100% perfect. If you are at home with people who are symptomatic, if you yourself have symptoms, you cannot believe one negative antigen test. And hence the requirement to do, I think the recommendation is to do three before you can say that you don't have it. So one test is never enough. And if you have symptoms at the moment, given prevalence is so high, you have to assume you have COVID and you have to stay at home. I think most people will do the right thing. There's always people who, who won't, who will, who will take reassurance from that one negative. That's always the concern. Um, but I think the majority of people at the moment realise how prevalent COVID is and will and, and they know the, the downfalls or the pitfalls of antigen testing and as I said one test is never enough. If you have multiple negative tests that will certainly help to reassure you that it more than likely isn't COVID but you need to have more than one test and you have to take action if you're symptomatic and particularly if you know you're a contact you have to take action based on that alone. I wonder will we ever ever know the true prevalence of COVID-19? Um, I just saw in the Business Post this morning are uh, reporting that positive antigen tests could be added to the official um, COVID figures. Um, the numbers are very high, um, Anna Rose. They are, uh, I suppose, quite scary. But um, but as all of the papers really kind of stressing today, it's not been replicated yet in kind of ICU admissions, thank God. Um, what is it like in your own hospital in Tala um, at the moment? So it's certainly busy. I was working all last week and we had a number of cases either coming in the door um, who came in either symptomatic or maybe come in for some other reason and had a positive test. And that's not surprising that there are people who present to hospital with something else who will also have COVID because it's just so prevalent in the community. So it's obviously quite busy. I mean, I don't think we're seeing the same disease severity we did this time last year. So if it was last January and we were getting 23,000 cases a day, our health system would have been absolutely crucified. We would have been terrified. We are under extreme pressure because the numbers are so high. So even though severity isn't as bad, the absolute numbers are still quite high coming through the door. And that um, must be impacting your own colleagues in terms of them being deemed close contacts or in fact um, uh, being diagnosed with, with COVID-19. Absolutely. So that's what it's just about to say. It's having a huge toll on our staffing levels in hospitals. So it's having a big impact on people either being off because of COVID or being off because of their contacts. So, you know, teams are decimated. So you have clinical teams trying to provide clinical services with, with minimal staff. Um, and that's purely even just trying to provide ward level care. So that's hence you've heard reports at the weekend of multiple hospitals cancelling surgery, cancelling clinics. And that's quite, you know, that's very, that's been devastating because a lot of people have worked very hard the last year to get things back up and running again. And here we are having to cancel procedures and clinics again. But unfortunately, it's necessary in order to provide the acute care to patients who need it the most in hospital, those who are the sickest. Um, unfortunately, all that um, non-urgent work has to be deferred for the moment and that's that's very, very difficult. And what's the impact then on morale? Because, you know, for, for many of us, maybe it might just be the inconvenience of having to work from home or, you know, restrict our movements. But, um, you know, your, your colleagues must be quite weary, uh, I suppose, going in now to the, th- the third year of this. Definitely. You know, we've been doing this for nearly two full years at this stage. Um, you know, the vaccinations, we're trying to be positive and saying, look, the vaccinations, the boosters, they, they are really beneficial, but we're still under extreme pressure in the healthcare system. And, you know, we've come through another Christmas where there hasn't been the festivities. Morale is low because of that. And then we're back into 
post-Christmas back into facing all this again. And it's really not knowing what will happen. So yes, it certainly seems to be the case that Omicron isn't that severe, but we're, we're just in week one of having these extremely high numbers. We don't really know what the impact on our intensive yeah. care is going to be in the next week or two. So it's, it's the fear of, of what will lie ahead in the next week it, or two. It, it is indeed. I think it's what uh, the, uh, the Sunday Independent, amongst others, has described as the perfect storm of general bed capacity being squeezed along with staff shortage pressures. Dr. Anna Rose-Prior, thank you so much, uh, Tala University Hospital, for joining us uh, this morning. Hugh, I just want to get back just to that piece in the Business Post about positive antigen tests being added to official COVID figures. This has knock-on implications for so many aspects of policy, including, um, you know, is it you know in the past you've needed a PCR test for your employer? Mm. Um, what is it going to be like for claiming any benefits from um, uh, social welfare? Um, I think there's been some sort of hint that uh, I think I saw it in the, in the Sunday Times that um, that. They will now accept confirmation from the HSE that an applicant had ordered an antigen test. Um, but it could po- pose problems in terms of ver- verifying. Yes, I mean, potentially, yeah. But I mean, I, I think that the, the, the view in government seems to be now that antigen testing, having been subject of much debate throughout mm. 2021 um, and resisted by Neffet, is now a key tool in the armor uh, in the armory for, for battling COVID-19. And so it, w- it can be used to verify a, an illness uh, benefit claim or, uh, you know, to get time off work or, or whatever your employer requires. Um, it is going to create problems, I, I suppose, because it's going to show up a lot more disease and a lot more people going to have to um Look I'm just thinking for for flying, you know, you couldn't yeah. so you couldn't submit your antigen test. You had to go and pay your uh not your insignificant PCR. amounts for your yeah. PCR. Well you or can do an antigen as well, for example. Like yeah. it depends on the country I guess. Uh you know, my sister went to the States last week and she's she got in with a, with an antigen test, a negative antigen test. Um, but some countries But if, but if you're a, a family and you're travelling, the, the figures can add the up. The figures right? can definitely add up, yeah. So this comes back to the issue of whether we should subsidise tests in the mm-hmm. first place or whether we should just make them free in the first place. And there's also issues seeming to emerge in recent days where the supply of antigen tests is, is um, not drying up completely, but certainly I think there's anecdotal reports of shortages. Certain pharmacies, mm-hmm. supermarkets that were selling them aren't selling them now because they've sold out over Christmas. Um, some pharmacies didn't stock up on antigen tests because they expected the, the subsidy. The subsidy never happened happened so it's been a bit of a mess but but I think it'll sort itself out as we move into move through January and into February and you know look we're going to have very high caseloads for for much of January I think but as we move into February I think the thing will start to tail off and you know <laughs> Shona mentioned Luke O'Neill's piece earlier and I just think it's it's a real ray of hope and I do think that things like the antivirals Paxlovid for example set to come in um you know subject to EMA approval probably towards the end of January end of this month rather beginning of February and that's going to be a key tool again to kind of you know, prevent serious illness. If I may just say, Darwell, you just imagine if the antigen testing was brought in, brought in a year ago, how far we would be in relation to the battle against COVID. Uh, you know, that's, that's a question. And listening to Anna Rose there talking from Tala Hospital, you can hear the anguish um, certainly in our voice. So obviously we need to strike a balance between public health, mental health and the economic growth of this country. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm going to come back to that just in a moment because there's some very, very interesting uh, stories around actually the extent of the government supports. But I first want to ask you, Shona, just about how we record those antigen cases because in Brussels, it's uh, where you're based now, it's, it's quite different. Obviously, we're just getting into our system tomorrow, but does it work well there? Yeah, that's right. So I, um, the way you do it is, I mean, I've had a few myself, you go into the pharmacy and you give them your essentially your PPS number, your national identity number, and then it's recorded onto your COVID search or the COVID or the Belgian COVID app. So that means it's official. So it means that it can't, it's verified because otherwise you 
there are would be concerns if you're recording yourself. Could you use yourself. somebody else's test? Oh, is that, well, you can't because you've gone in with your yeah. with your ID card, right? So therefore, it is officially on your app. But other than, if you look at what the government is probably has to announce now, with this is that a person will record it themselves. So you're relying on them to be truthful, and that it's not just a reason to maybe take some time off work or or, or something. Uh, so that's why there is a concern around it. Because also, you know, in order to get into bars, restaurants, and stuff in in Brussels, you need to have a, an official antigen test, not an antigen test that you did yourself. Similarly, to get into or to, to travel as well. But then, I mean, how would that work either? Because the pharmacies will be oversubscribed with people queuing up outside trying to get official antigen test results. So I think this measure is probably just for now because we're in the tsunami of cases. Yeah, I mean, I think one one thing that's worth pointing out is that this Christmas, you know, people have been enormously compliant with what what has been guidance and guidelines. Like, you know, people haven't been forced to isolate. People haven't been forced to do anything. There's no regulations around the current uh, public health guidelines in terms of household numbers and and, household, and the restrictions on the number of households uh, that that are allowed gather people are just being really really cautious this Christmas and I think, I think it's, it's paid off you is know? recording it as well because yeah. on your in, in terms of um, some people who may not want to get vaccinated mm. they want to have an official recording that they've had COVID you can't do that with an antigen test that you just conducted yeah. yourself so that's another element of it it's not really that prevalent in Ireland because everyone's getting vaccinated mm. but for people uh, down but, the line but it's interesting there is a piece uh, um, there's an interview in the Michael Brennan in the Sunday Business Post with, um, with uh, Minister Heather Humphreys and uh, just where it says last month the cost of pandemic unemployment payment reached the 9 billion mark um, and the Controller and Order General the state spending watchdog had estimated that uh, 9% of it uh, could have been claimed fraudulently. So it's, it raises some interesting questions. I want to go back to uh, to you, Paul Allen, just on the extent of the supports. As we say, huge uh, state support in Ireland and else, elsewhere for businesses. Um, and there is a lead, I think, in the, the Sunday Times business section. Where yeah, Niall the, Brady, the yeah. fine business journalist, writes about the corporate levels of insolvencies um, are, are as bad as back in the Celtic Tiger. And literally the... It's somewhat uh, being propped up by by the various subsidies from from government. So the zombie companies are literally being kept up, uh, and they've deferred their debt and their tax liabilities. But that's a shocking. Uh, well, no. What they said is that it's less than four hundred companies. Yeah. You would imagine that without uh, the level of state support, that it would that, be worse. Um, it would be worse. Um, will there be a, you know a, a day of reckoning? There's a lot of interviews with um, business owners, whether it's. Um, hospitality, hairdressers, everything, talking about the impact of the uh, staff shortages, Paul, and uh, the use of this phrase, which I detest, the pandemic, as if yeah. employees are responsible for uh, for, for, for following sure. the rules in the midst of a public health crisis. It's, 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 it's a bit of a word, I think, that just grates with me. <laughs> Ma- Maeve Sheen has, uh, and Neve Horan have a double page uh, feature and talks about the restaurants that have gone bang. It talks about the hairdressers that are out battling with 40% of their staff gone, like you can't survive and, and one restaurant in Dublin had to throw out like 20,000 euros worth I of think food. I that was Peplos in, in, in yeah. Dublin City Centre had to uh, throw out up to 20,000 euros worth of food but it's not the fault of the employees who are following a public health guidance. No it's not but there's a knock-on effect to the suppliers that are in that situation. Uh, they need to get paid. They're going to have obviously staff and overheads to cope with. Like Christmas while we're all eating turkey businesses are trying to survive uh, and, and the bills are going through the roof so people are delayed paying in their money if he's throwing out 20,000 euros worth of food how's he going to pay 20,000 euros well, worth of food he bought in if, if, so you, think, if you think it's staggering. bad here it's just as well we're not in New York there's a huge big interview with uh, the John hotelier Fitzpatrick. John Fitzpatrick
Patrick uh, in the Business Post. Um, he said, no investors, no family. Um, if I hadn't brought my debt down, I don't know if I'd be sitting here today. But just talking about the different uh, different um, levels of it. But Hugh, um, just before we go to a break, I suppose the there will be a day of reckoning. Um, yeah. Not all companies can be saved. And um, I suppose this this it's a very, very delicate policy balance between public health and uh, the economy. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a story in the Sunday Independent um, early last month based on a, a briefing given to Cabinet that effectively there's about 300,000 jobs in the country um, mm. with 25,000 different businesses dependent on the employment wage subsidy mm. scheme. A lot of people who've transitioned off pop have transitioned into jobs that mm. are propped up by the EWSS. And the cabinet was told basically uh, last month that um, there's, there, there will be a shakeout next year, which will be basically businesses going to the wall, mm. jobs not viable once the, this support is removed. Now the current plan and is revenue that, coming under huge pressure yeah, to uh, what does it do with all of the, that warehouse the current, debt? The current plan is is for the EWS to be tapered, uh, I think, from the beginning mm. of February and then to be uh, wound down completely by the end of April. Mm. And in that scenario, you would expect that some businesses just won't be viable mm. anymore because yeah. people's habits have changed. Changed. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm back in everything, all I, those big names. Listen, um, why don't we just take a quick break? Um, we'll be back um, just after this. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. You're all very welcome back to the programme. Derv McDonald sitting in for Brendan O'Connor. Um, lots of texts and messages. Um, one from Pat says, surely there will be more COVID variants on the way and some could completely evade our current vaccines. Are we going to be in a permanent cycle of in and out of restrictions indefinitely? I hope not. Um, one email we received, um, oh, it says, I've kept people to a minimum for the last two years and I have friends who want to go out or call to their house. I'm very reluctant to do this. One of them has said, if I don't call to them, they won't telephone me again. Can you please tell me what to say to them? Something um, Paul Allen in the Ballion and All studio where, where he has supplies. It brings of, home. That, that's it brings sad, it home, yeah. doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And uh, you go by people's houses um, and, you know, they have the Christmas decorations in, the Christmas tree lights are on, but, you know, what state, state of wellness and stability are they going through? It, it's heartbreaking when you see it. Um, and forgive me, like, um, I'm, I've been down here for the last two weeks enjoying myself. In Dublin I'm normally running around in a bubble and you can get a bit lost and, and with, with actually what's going on um, and it's, it's, just, it's just heartbreaking when you see what's happening, the isolation and I also fear, uh, there's a very good article in the Irish Independent uh, a young journalist uh, wrote a story back in, in, in November, yes. Holly uh, and she talks about going back to college and the isolation and the, the issues that she has um, in, in, in kind of coping with that uh, so I think mental health and mental wellness and looking after each other is going to be something that's very, very important uh, for the months ahead. Yeah. Well, something else that's going to be uh, quite important in the months ahead is the uh, the future of Fianna Fáil, uh, which <laughs> do- dominates all of the newspapers because you, you can answer uh, that one. <laughs> the Taoiseach Michael Martin gave a briefing before Christmas and it, um, it, it is the lead in uh, the Irish uh, Mail on Sunday, but it is also carried in all of the newspapers. And Sinn Féin's getting to him. It is. Well, let's go to Hugh Connell, uh, political correspondent of the Irish Band, because you were there at the briefing, mm. Hugh. And it's interesting because it <coughs> is um, an outright attack on Sinn Féin and its policies, including its foreign policies by the Taoiseach, but who also says we're not ruling out going into uh, government with him. What can you tell us about uh, the briefing and I suppose the coverage uh, uh, in today's papers? Yeah, well, I mean, this... Um this came up towards the end of the briefing and 
Michael Martin, it was actually myself who asked him about Sinn Féin and, and whether he would mm. rule out, uh, you know, it's his intention to lead Fianna Fáil into the next election. His parliamentary well, party might have well, something sure to say about that. he can't say otherwise, can he? can't say otherwise. So, you know, the question was put as to whether uh, in that scenario would he be uh, ruling out Sinn Féin in the way in which he did in 2016, when he also ruled out Fianna Gael, by the way, and mm. we know what happened there. So um, he, he said it was about policy, and on that basis he then proceeded to tear apart Sinn Féin policy on he everything didn't hold from back. housing to uh, the economy, uh, that they would tax the life out a bit of the, the SME sector. Uh, but one particular criticism which stuck out for me was this uh, Russia, lack of mm. criticism of Russia, and in particular the, the party the he said has, has been silent on um, Ukraine. the build-up of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine in recent weeks, which has been seen by the US and the West as, a, as a, an act of aggression. Uh, and also Sinn Féin was not critical, particularly critical of, of Russia over the annexation of Crimea seven years ago. Um, okay, he particularly even says, go back to Ona Bren, look yeah, at all of your speeches exactly, on what has yeah. been... So, I mean, he's... he's uh, it's it's unclear really. I mean, he wouldn't answer the question as to what he was getting at here with regards to Sinn Fein and Russia. But his position is that Sinn Fein never criticises Russia. And if you go back and look at Sinn Fein's record in relation to Russia, just from what's publicly available, we know, for example, that Mary Lou Macdonald was critical of the Irish government for expelling a, a Russian diplomat after the Salisbury poisoning in 2018. Uh, and Shona will know better than I do, covering Brussels, that Sinn Fein MEPs have uh, consistently voted against motions condemning Russia, human rights abuses, the annexation of Crimea. So their record on Russia is is a little out of kilter with kind of settled Irish foreign yeah. policy in that area. And, and Shunder, look, I mean, Sinn Féin obviously traditionally a, a Eurosceptic mm. uh, party, but um, is Michal Martin right on this issue? Because obviously COVID aside, the build-up of troops um, uh, in Ukraine it has been one of the biggest uh, news stories and I suppose that's a, a big fear going into 2022. It still is a huge story. I mean, we had an interview with the Ukrainian Prime Minister who said there's 190,000 combat-ready mm. troops at the border. Uh, we've, we know from Vladimir Putin that they are ready and willing to invade Ukraine again. And looking at the disaster of Afghanistan during the year, we know that NATO is not going to be willing to use any military tactics to support Ukraine. So Ukraine is in a very, very serious situation. The only thing the EU has agreed to do is uh, deepen and widen sanctions against uh, Putin, against his regime. But then you'd have to question where would Sinn Féin be on that? Because any of these decisions have to be taken unanimously. As it surges in the polls, as there's almost an inevitability about um, Sinn Féin being in, if not leading, uh, the next government. Certainly that seems to be the a lot of the coverage um, it is going. The party is going to have to articulate um, its stance on some of the bigger issues, and not just the the depressing domestic issues exactly. such as uh, housing. Well, one is one thing that's very worrying was that this time last year, John Bade, the Sinn Féin uh, foreign affairs spokesperson, had to confirm uh, that he did agree that Bashar al-Assad was responsible for chemical weapons attacks against his own people. Now that's interesting because it's a Russian disinformation trope that says that this was the white helmets and so on, and this is a then essentially supporting a person, an oppressive uh, regime like Bashar al-Assad or going against European policy, which is that this is a tyrant, a, a person responsible for the worst atrocities in armed conflict. And remember as well, uh, a few weeks ago, the European Union sanctioned uh, Wagner, which is a mercenary group aligned to the Kremlin, which goes uh, to some of the worst conflicts in the world in Syria and Libya and Mali and so on, and engage in, again, grave breaches of human rights, including torture, intimidation, extrajudicial uh, judicial 
Kinning killing on behalf of oppressive regimes. These are groups, these are people who were sanctioned by the EU recently. Russia is a huge threat to global security. And if you have to have a government in Ireland that is so far unwilling or has a notable silence, according to Michal Martin, over the build-up of military forces in the Ukrainian border, then that's a very mm-hmm. serious issue. Because also you have to question where would Sinn Féin be in the consensus when it comes to sanctioning uh, against Russia and whether it's Elad Alexander Lukashenko, who mm-hmm. you were saying before that they were slow to condemn they were a little bit what's slow happening to condemn. in Belarus. If you look at also how important a weak EU is for Putin, and this is exactly what happens if you look at the <clears throat> refugee crisis, one of the byproducts of the Syrian uh, war is that you have millions of refugees causing huge problems in Europe for rightly and or wrong in reasons. Certain countries and certain countries, and particularly in certain countries, the weaponization of innocent children at the border in Belarus. And this is exactly what Putin wants. And so the idea that you could be naive when it comes to Russia or not take a strong stance if you are going to rule uh, or be in government in this country is extremely worrying. And um, uh, Michal Martin is making the point there, Mary, Mary Lou was absolutely silent on Russia, but then went to attack the EU on its um, vaccine mm-hmm. programme. Obviously, the Sinn Féin's entitled to attack or criticise the EU, but Ireland wouldn't have the vaccines that it does have if it wasn't for the EU's procurement programme. Can I just bring Paul Allen in on that? Because, um, Paul... Um you know, with greater um, exposure and certainly the, the poll numbers that Sinn Féin are enjoying and have been enjoying for quite some time, uh, comes greater scrutiny um, sure. of their policies, including their uh, foreign policies, because it's easy uh, for parties to, um, I suppose, attract support on the basis of, of the big ticket issues such as housing or health. Sure, but right now with, with Michal's comments, it's really sticks and stones. Uh, I'm really surprised that he's come out at that. And really with looking at the island of Ireland, there's a very important election going to happen in Northern Ireland on the 5th of May. Um, and you'll see M- Michelle O'Neill and the party, you know, that will do very well in, in relation to that. Because obviously with the May backdrop... May even take the position of the office of um, First Minister. Absolutely. And when you take the, the dithering that's going on, uh, we now have Brexit, which is an absolute uh, disgrace going on since 2016. Uh, it's a complete mess. We now have Liz Truss. And if somebody wants to really understand the British politics going on, Liz Truss, who's on YouTube uh, delivering a, um, a lecture at the Food and Drink Federation when she was campaigning for um, the UK to stay within Europe. So we've seen Lord Frost gone, David Davis is gone, Dominic Rabb is gone, uh, and Stephen Barclay, who nobody can really remember when he took it over first. The thing is, the Brexit issue is going to fuel the matter in Northern Ireland. You'll have people, it'll be more or less a referendum again in relation to it. And I just think that the Northern politics thing is, is going to be colossal in the eyes of the future of Sinn Féin down here. Hugh O'Connell, a cynic might say that um, uh, Taoiseach Michael Martin attacking uh, Sinn Féin on, on Russia is a, is a wonderful deflection away yeah, from... Yeah, well, um, I was just going to say. <laughs> uh, from, 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 so internal channels, yeah. you have an interview with uh, Jim O'Callaghan, yeah. the would-be leader of Fianna Fáil. You need a vision. There has to be more to politics than just managerialism, he said. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a dead cat, dead cat strategy for Michael Martin, just because you can bet, bet your life that, that Mary Lou McDonald's going to be asked about Sinn Féin and, and its relationship with Russia over the next week or so, whenever she's out in the media. But yeah, Jim O'Callaghan in the, in the Sunday Independent today is just talking really about um, not wanting to start the firing gun on a leadership campaign, but he's out. He's talking about his vision for Ireland. He's talking about reunification. He's talking about the, the and, need and, to and prepare he's been, for a border He's been at that for, for he some has, time. Yeah, for, for across 2021, he was he was talking a lot about the issue. But one of the most interesting points I thought he made in, in the interview was that you know we need to prepare for border poll because there's a possibility that, that so unpredictable is the government in in the UK that if there was a Scottish independence referendum mm-hmm. in short order and it was defeated. Um, 
the UK might look to copper fasten the union by saying, well, we're going to do a border poll in Northern Ireland now as well. Um, and in that instance, would, would we be prepared for that? I don't think we are at this stage. And so he's talking, and it's very much kind of aligned with the Sinn Féin thinking all this, although Sinn Féin perhaps be a bit more uh, agitating for, for a border poll. We need to prepare. We need to get well, ready. And I think probably one of the key lessons from Brexit yeah. is um, uh, <laughs> feel to prepare at your, yeah. uh, at your peril. Correct, yeah. um, let's go for a quick ad break. We'll be back after this. Text 51551. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Don't miss the sale of the year at DID Electrical with the Samsung Jet 60 Pet Cordless Vacuum for only 279.99, the Nordmende 10kg washing machine for only 329.99, the Toshiba 42-inch Smart LED TV for only 299.99, plus the 14-inch Flip and Touch Asus Chromebook for only 199.99. Shop Guaranteed Irish at your local DID Electrical and DID.ie. The Tile Style 40th Anniversary Sale starts tomorrow, and we're celebrating with 40% off all in stock top brand tiles, even Porcelanosa. Huge savings on bathrooms, kitchens, and wood flooring in stock now. Help us celebrate 40 years at Europe's largest tile, kitchen, wood, and bathroom showroom in the Tile Style 40th Anniversary Sale. Shop in-store at Ballymount or at tilestyle.ie. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. You're all very welcome back to the programme. Dervin McDonald sitting in for Brendan O'Connor and I'm joined this morning by Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent for the Irish Independent, by Paul Allen from Paul Allen PR. He's uh, in our Bolly Nagal uh, studio around Miguel Tops. I'm loving it, as you can hear, <laughs> uh, down in the wild Atlantic way. Uh, we're also joined uh, by uh, the twice recovered from COVID uh, political, uh, our European correspondent for your news, Shona and Murray. Uh, and you're all very welcome again. So look, um, let's uh, look at that other um, element in the paper today, which is looking forward um, to the year ahead and there's lots of big big uh, think pieces on it Stephen O'Brien in the Sunday Times is one Daniel Murray looking ahead um, lots of um, looking out at it um, uh, I might just go to there Shona um, just um, on that look I mean there is a lot coming up not least the elections um, in Northern Ireland um, which could be um, which could be really groundbreaking yeah, exactly. I mean, as you mentioned there, Derville, that Sinn Féin could take the post of First Minister, which psychologically would be incredible mm-hmm. for the DUP, who, which, which is the largest party now, but polls saying that they could, uh, could go down as far as the third mm-hmm. place, which obviously will create uh, a lot of tension and concern for the unionists, given that, as you know, Hugh was mentioning earlier, there isn't preparations or major preparations underway yet in for a united Ireland. But obviously, but the there's, fear a is there. there's a lot of discussions. There's a lot of discussions. There's a lot of discussions. Discussion is different to preparations. In fact, too much discussions without preparations actually creates even more fear because it shows you um, why, if there's no plan, then you could see something like that we saw with Brexit, a complete disaster, and also the, mainly not everybody on board. I was interesting, Hugh. You were saying that Jim McCallum was making the point that if there was a Scottish referendum and it was defeated, they might copper fasten you. I don't think a Scottish referendum at this point would be defeated. No, I, I think yeah. it would very much More be. Um, to yeah, yeah, Scotland, as somebody said, pointed out to me before, in, from the British side, was halfway out the, out the door already. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, but but I think uh, but I think even Nicola Sturgeon knows that anything less than probably a sixty forty, you know, you mm. do need uh, Hugh Connell something a bit more comprehensive. I think those knife edge um, referenda polls are are more problems than they're worth. But do you think, though, that uh, Boris Johnson is in a position now to deliver on that, to give Nicola Sturgeon a referendum, even though you know, de- definitely the argument is there because people voted in favour of staying in the union 
to stay in the European Although Union. If you, if you look at those borrowed poll numbers in those so-called uh, red wall constituencies, uh, looking at the, the UK papers over the last week, I want to go, Shona, just on, um, or actually Paul Allen, I might bring you in on this, um, uh, Jeffrey Donaldson's um, yeah. continued deadline ultimatum um, on the EU talks. Where do you see uh, that going? Well, uh, Daniel Murray in the Business Post uh, has a double-page feature and he talks about all of that and he talks about back in 2017 the Unionists lost the majority of the Assembly elections uh, and Geoffrey Donaldson seems to have this uh, in his back pocket to roll this out at some point. Um, I, I just think we just need to give the new person more time, I suppose. I believe she's going to Northern Ireland uh, next week to visit and have a look around. A number of the groups up there uh, will be meeting her, but um, who knows where it's going to happen. He needs to do something rapidly because um, people in Northern Ireland are just getting on with their lives they're just sick of this uh, politics going on and he, they need to do something fairly quickly um, and with, with Daniel's piece um, he, he talks about uh, the future of the Democratic Union Party as to where they're going to be, he talks about the Alliance Party but Naomi Long um, but obviously they're just staring I think defeat in, in, in between their eyes with Sinn Féin going to, to do extremely well, well I think Geoffrey Donaldson though now this constant threat to pull out a storm and if the uh, protocol isn't removed wholly or the European Court of Justice isn't removed mm. from the dem- less demands, I mean, that's not going to get him far because that's just mm. going to, that's going to fail. We know that the UK is already sort of um, watering down or diluting mm. its demand on the European Court of Justice. The medicines issue, which is the central mm. biggest issue uh, in terms of consequences of the protocol, has been settled for the le- next three years. Essentially, the status quo remains, so there won't be a problem with medicines. And if the EU... And also and the that UK, quiet admission that things are working out quite well economically. Ex- for, economically, for exactly. And if you, don't, if, you look to, if you speak to any of the export groups or import groups, Seamus Lehany and others, they would tell you they're fielding calls from the Commission uh, who have had calls from the United States about investments in Northern Ireland because if the protocol works as it's supposed to, then obviously Northern Ireland has it has a Hugh Connor. Will the forthcoming elections in Northern Ireland, in your view, be a referendum in all but name, as Paula said, on the DUP's um, strategy? Can they rally? Um, what is your sense, or is it a sort of a grand old Duke of York strategy of marching everyone up to the top of the hill and back down again? Well, my, my sense is that you know Sinn Fein will, will be the largest party. Uh, nationalism will overtake unionism. There'll be a, a few seats of a difference. Um, and they'll be stalemate for months um, because I don't think... I think it uh, used to be that you used to have to uh, form an executive within two weeks. Yeah. But I think that has been extended. Uh, I think so, yeah. But I, mean, I just think I don't think unionists will acquiesce to the idea of a Sinn Féin first minister. Mm-hmm. And I think Sinn Féin will, will definitely be like, well, look, we, we, you know, whatever about Mary Lou for Taoiseach, Michelle O'Neill for first minister will be the, uh, will be the hashtag, will be the message. And I, I think that that is not going to get the uh, support or the backing of unionists yeah. in and any Paul, way, shape or form. I, and I think that's just going to create a situation where, they, they'll be stalemate and we'll have Simon Coveney and Liz Truss uh, in Stormont for, for months, I'd say. And Paul, um, just as Shona was saying, it is, I suppose oh, Liz said, Truss, sorry, that, the you Northern know, Ireland Secretary. Yeah, mm. the, the, you know, the Office of First Minister is technically a joint office, but um, there would be something psychological in Sinn Féin taking that for the first time. Absolutely, um, but but just to go back uh, and just take where he he was going with Liz Truss and 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 Simon Coveney. Simon Coveney did a very good inter- interview in the Financial Times yesterday in terms of what's happening. But the stalling is is, is going to have to stop. Uh, is the point that that, uh, that Simon was making in the interview yesterday. Uh, but if you look at Liz Truss's boss Boris Johnson, uh, you know like. 
his, he's running out of road. Uh, the Tory party, their, their, their time is limited in, in terms of what's happening and the messages he's getting out. So they're just sick and tired of Brexit. Everybody's sick and tired of Brexit, but it's going to be a winning strategy for Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland because people just want to get on with their lives uh, and, and try and sort things out. And whether they're going to act uh, and, 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 and act the, the section in, in due course, who knows? But like it, it, it's still going on. Well, 2022 is going to be a landmark year uh, for Northern Ireland. And earlier this week, uh, we had a great response to uh, an interview we had with uh, the archivist and broadcaster Katrina Crow, uh, Crow on 1922. And I want to go now to um, Dara Gannon, who is one of the editors, along with Fergal McGarry, of a new book uh, called Ireland 1922, Independence, Partition and the Civil War. You're very, very welcome to the programme, Dara. Morning, Dervil. Well, happy New Year to you. Yeah, I'm absolutely devastated. I'm looking at the Sunday Independent has a fabulous um, original sort of uh, pull-out of their first coverage of the treaty vote back uh, on Sunday, January 8th, 1922. Luckily for them, it fell in time. And there's only one woman um, in the coverage, and it's a Miss Mary Terry. She was playing the principal boy in Babes in the Wood at the Royal <laughs> that week. <laughs> it was all about the guys. But look, one of the things, um, Dara, I think, is that, you know, this is such a momentous year, but w- w- where do we even call it? What is the date of the beginning of the state, in your view? Well, I mean, the 7th of December is potentially one of the candidates for the beginning of our independence in, in, in some respects. As we know, the uh, treaty was passed by the Dáil on the 7th of December 1922 uh, by 64 votes to 57. Um, I think actually the point you raise in relation to women's involvement and their visibility or lack thereof 100 years ago was very pertinent. If you look at that newspaper, um, again, we have the votes listed of which TDs voted for and against the treaty. And as we know, the women voted against the treaty. But I think it's appropriate as we approach Nulag Naman that we recognise that women had greater agency than just voting in terms of the doll. In um, many ways, actually, the, the women of the Dáil who voted against the treaty were characterised as furies, which is mm-hmm. the term used PSO Haggerty 100 years ago. And that stigma was attached to them for much of the century since. And what our new book, which I've edited with Virgil McGarry, uh, shows through a number of contributors that women showed agency um, and political activism throughout the year 1922, but also, quite interestingly, in terms of that debate, uh, there was a great deal of emotion shown across the floor by both men and women. And again, if you look at this, the newspaper title of the day, it says, Affecting Scene, Mr. De Valera yes. Shows Signs of Emotion. So it wasn't just women who were showing emotion. It was a very emotional time. And people demonstrated their love for each other and the Republic and those, in those debates. Yeah, and it really is. It's, it's a fantastic uh, pull-out uh, section for Play to the Sunday Independent for um, reproducing it. Um, I think what, um, and maybe actually this year could be the year we could reclaim positively the, the year of the Furies. Maybe that's what we'll have for Nulligan in, in a few <laughs> days' time. But um, what's interesting um, I think, Dara, in, and it's something I think that is coming up, is that you look across the water to our, our new nearest, closest neighbour uh, since uh, the, the UK left to France and they've had many republics. They kind of reinvented uh, the second, the third, the fourth. Is that something 100 years after the the birth of the state, difficult and contested as that was, that we could um, or should be engaging in, especially as you heard earlier from our uh, panellists ahead of um, what could be an equally contentious unity debate? Exactly, and I think those two issues are tied quite closely. You're quite right to raise the issue of France, which, of course, has had five republics uh, since the formation 
of the French uh, state. And um, similarly, South Korea, which was established in 1948, has had six republics since the same time as we've had one. And I think actually it's an interesting time to have a discussion about who we are, what is the republic uh, in 2022. I mean, if you look back at the treaty debates, they were arguing, debating what was the Irish Republic in 1922. I think one of the best ways in which we can honour the debates of 100 years ago is to discuss in 22, uh, 2022 what is the Irish Republic. And this might also inform... Uh, going forward, issues over Irish unity. I think ultimately, if there is a united Ireland, it will have to come under some kind of new or second republic. And I think we do need a new mission statement as to what that new republic will look like. Uh, and again, this is very, you know, very common in other countries, in France, South Korea, which I've mentioned. Um, and obviously, uh, the attendant document which would come with that would perhaps be a new proclamation. So a I new proclamation that- or a new constitution? You know, Hugh O'Connell, you look to the, you know, to the US, and some want a very original, stick to the original interpretation of the constitution. Others say it's a living, breathing document. We have had a lot of social change: same-sex marriage, divorce, access uh, to abortion services. Do you think there could be a new document, proclamation, constitution? Would that be a very uh, difficult uh, process to undertake? Well, it would be very difficult. I mean, we've, <clears throat> we've seen that with changes to the Constitution over over the last 100 years that they have been difficult. Some have been extremely fraught and some have required several referendums uh, to, to get changes. But, but I mean, I think it, w- it would probably um, warrant a, a... I mean, I think the Constitutional Convention has been a good structure in which to, you know, create constitutional change because it gets the input of the people and it, it kind of tests, tests the water, I suppose, as to whether there's an appetite for change. But I think kind of a wider constitutional review is probably merited at this stage. I mean, there's some clauses in the constitution which are completely outdated at this point. Uh, I've been thinking back, the last the constitution review group as far back as 1996. Is it an opportunity, though, Shona, to um, to have a new conversation? Well, absolutely, particularly because of Brexit, it's an important time, not just because of the centenary, but because we could end up having a united Ireland or a new Ireland in coming years. So it's there's no point in almost sort of changing the constitution or creating a whole new constitution if once again you're going to have to do it all over again. But I think Hugh's right in the constitutional convention. And the the citizens assembly and so on have been excellent ways for participatory democracy. For, for, for participatory, exactly because it's particularly when you look at, I mean, how bad Brexit was rolled out and how badly informed people were, without any uh, access to uh, the issues. Whereas when you look at the abortion debate in particular and same-sex marriage, where people who didn't really know the facts were given an informed, uh, independent facts about the implications of the Eighth Amendment and so on, uh, and made those decisions based on um, informed, proper information. So I think what we have at the moment seems to be working. And actually, uh, when you look at other countries talking about replicating that. Um, Darragan, 100 years ago in Paris, um, we had a global Irish Race Congress where um, some of our hugest political figures, uh, Emma de Valera, Miriam McSweeney, um, the, the diaspora gathered in Paris and uh, t- to have a big conversation about the nation. You are Vice President of the Global Irish Diaspora Congress. Um, should they have a big, big say um, in this conversation? Well, I think it's really important to remember that this took this Irish Race Congress, which took place between the 21st and 28th of January 1922, took place only two weeks after the Dáil debates. And I think those conversations between global Irish nationalists, as they were at the time, are as significant as as the Dáil debates themselves. 100 delegates from 22 countries. It was the global Irish meeting of its day. 
Um, and I think it's really important going forward that the global Ireland uh, population or community is, is part of the debate in, in 1922. As we know, there is current uh, debate about whether there should be a vote for the Irish diaspora in presidential elections. Mm -hmm. That referendum is due to, I think, take place later this year, again in 2022. I think that will be a remarkable legacy to the Irish diaspora. And I think one quite poetic ending, actually, to that meeting, they suggested, and De Valera was party to this, that they should organise a new uh, movement to uh, bring the Irish diaspora together called Fuine Gael, ironically. And yet that organisation, Fuine Gael, has been lost to history, as have, as, as have been many Irish diaspora voices. And yet Fuine Gael, the party which succeeded the pro-treaty uh, party, is remembered in Irish history. So it's important to remember the Irish diaspora in 2022. It's interesting. There's quite a little uh, bit of feedback here, Paul, uh, Alan, um, on this great point. Have a discussion on a new republic, uh, says John in an email. That would be very interesting uh, to have a discussion around a new Irishness. Another Ed sent in a text, uh, Darville, we have the dreariest national anthem in the world. We need a new one, something <laughs> a bit more like uh, the Marseillais. Um, do we have time in the context of Brexit, Paul Allen, to um, have that discussion? You know, we have another um, uh, texter saying a republic needs value, such is liberty, equality, fraternity that citizens can refer to? What would be the common values that bind the citizens, regardless of race, creed or well, colour? Those, those values we had back in the 1798 uh, commemorations and uh, I, I, I know Martin Manser and, and uh, Morris Manning have come together. They're part of they're the they're noted historians who are going to commemorate uh, the, the special year we're going to have with the beginning of the Civil War, the assassination of Michael Collins and the death of Arthur Griffith and obviously the birth of the Free State. So it'd be very interesting to see how that's handled in the course of it. But I think certainly we should have the conversation running. And I know RTE are running a series of programmes based on that. So that'll help uh, amplify and echo the, the conversation that we all want to have. And hopefully we, sorry, Shona, hopefully we won't be up against the clock in that conversation as I am now coming up to the 12 o'clock news. Hugh O'Connell, Paul Allen and Shona Murray, thank you very, very much uh, for joining us.